If your happy ending is no more joint pain, please try Sierra Sil with a money-back guarantee. It's all-natural joint pain relief that's changed our lives. Sierra, like the mountains, and Sil, like silicon. Go to sierrasil.com. Use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to Drift. I'm so glad you're here with me, because this tale is about Rip Van Winkle. And most of us are aware of him, but who's actually heard the story by Washington Irving? Well, that's what I have for you here, tailored especially for you and Drift, and made possible by Envy Pillow. Now, you may not have heard of Envy Pillow yet, but truly, RNs Kathy and Kim have created pillows and other sleep products that are the stuff that dreams are made of. I've been a fan, a customer, for nearly two decades. I'm so glad to be one of their spokespeople now, and they just keep improving, getting better and greener with time, now with germ-clearing copper. Yep, these pillows are copper-infused, supportive, comfortable, and kind to Mother Earth. You'd want that in a friend, so why not a pillow? Learn more in the morning at Envy. That's envypillow.com. Just before we travel back in time to the late 18th century and southeastern New York State, let's get you comfortable and in a place where you can imagine you're like Rip in the soft ferns and grass under a tree. The summer air is fresh. And if you would now, let's take a deep inhale and exhale. let that feeling of release and relaxation spread from the tip of your toes all the way up to the top of that beautiful head of yours. Now again, a deep breath in. And as you exhale, your body is completely letting go of everything you're holding in your shoulders, your neck, your back, your hips, and your jaw. As you lie there now, just think these words. I am safe. I am loved. I am at peace. And if you're ready, let's drift. If you've ever traveled in New York State and taken a voyage up the Hudson, then I'm sure you'll remember the Catskill Mountains a branch of the great Appalachian family. They're seen away to the west of the river, swelling up to a noble height. At the foot of these fairy mountains, you may have noticed the light smoke curling up from a small village of great history, having been founded by Dutch colonists in the early times of the province. And some of the houses of the original settlers stood there, built of small bricks brought from Holland, with latticed windows and gable fronts, and topped with weather vanes. In that same village, and in one of these very houses, which, to tell the truth, was time-worn and weather-beaten, there lived, back when the country was yet a province of Great Britain, a simple, good-natured fellow 
by the name of Rip Van Winkle. He was also a kind neighbor and an obedient and awfully put-upon husband. Indeed, perhaps it was that meekness of spirit which made him so popular with everyone. A nasty spouse may, therefore, in some ways be considered a tolerable blessing. And if so, Rip Van Winkle was blessed many, many times over. Now our gentle Rip was a great favorite among all the good wives of the village who took his part in all family squabbles and never failed whenever they talked those matters over in their evening get-togethers to lay all the blame on Mrs. Van Winkle. The children of the village, too, would shout with joy whenever he approached. He helped them with their sports, made them toys, taught them to fly kites and shoot marbles, and told them long stories of ghosts and witches. Whenever he went about the village, he was surrounded by a troop of them, hanging on his shirt, clambering on his back, and playing a thousand tricks on him with not a harsh word from Rip. In fact, you couldn't even find a dog that would bark at him throughout the neighborhood. The big flaw in Rip's makeup was that he had a complete aversion to any and all kinds of profitable work. Oh, he could persevere. He would sit on a wet rock with a rod long and heavy and fish all day without a bite. He would carry a gun on his shoulder for hours, trudging through woods and swamps, and barely find a target. If a neighbor needed help, even with the roughest job, there was Rip, building stone fences, toiling away. And the women of the village, too, used to get him to do small, odd jobs that their less obliging husbands would not do for them. In other words, Rip was ready to attend to anybody's business but his own. Family duty and keeping his farm in order? Impossible. In fact, he said it was of no use to work on his farm. It was the most pestilent little piece of ground in the whole country. Everything about it went wrong. His fences were always falling apart. His cow would go astray. His fields were full of weeds, and the rain always set in just as he had some outdoor work to do. So he had the worst farm in the neighborhood. His children, too, were as ragged and wild as if they belonged to nobody. His son, Rip, was just like old dad, and at every sign of inheriting his father's character as well as his old clothes. He was usually seen trooping at his mother's heels, wearing a pair of his father's cast-off, loose-fitting trousers, which he had to hold up with one hand, as a fine lady does her train in bad weather. Rip Van Winkle, however, was one of those happy mortals, of foolish, well-oiled dispositions, who would take the world easy and would rather starve on a penny than work for a pound. If left to himself, he would have whistled life away in perfect contentment, but his wife kept on about his idleness, 
his carelessness, and the ruin he was bringing on his family. Everything he said or did was sure to produce a torrent of household eloquence. How did Rip respond? He shrugged his shoulders, shook his head, rolled his eyes, and said nothing, which would only infuriate his wife even more. Rip's only friend at home was his dog, Wolf. Dame Van Winkle regarded them as companions in laziness, and even blamed Wolf for his master's going astray. In truth, he was as courageous an animal as ever scoured the woods. But what courage can withstand the evil doing and terrors of a human tongue? The moment Wolf entered the house, his chest fell. His tail drooped to the ground or curled between his legs. He sneaked about like he was going to the gallows while watching out for Dame Van Winkle's broomstick. Times grew worse and worse for Rip Van Winkle. As years of matrimony rolled on, a tart temper never mellows with age, and a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows keener with constant use. For a long while, he used to console himself by frequenting a kind of ongoing club of the sages, philosophers, and other idle people of the village, which held its sessions on a bench in front of a small inn designated by a portrait of His Majesty George III. Here they would sit in the shade through a long summer's day, talking lazily over village gossip or telling endless sleepy stories about nothing. On occasion, profound discussions took place when by chance an old newspaper fell into their hands from some passing traveler. How solemnly they would listen to the contents, as drawled out by Derek Van Bummel, the schoolmaster, a dapper, learned man who was not to be daunted by the most gigantic word in the dictionary, and how sagely they would deliberate upon public events, even though they had taken place some months before. The opinions of this group were completely controlled by Nicholas Vetter, a patriarch of the village. He was rarely heard to speak, but smoked his pipe incessantly. Ah, but from even this stronghold, the unlucky Rip was found by his wife and dragged home. She would suddenly break in upon the tranquility of the assemblage and give them all proper, you know what, for encouraging her husband's idle habits. Rip was at last reduced almost to despair and his only escape from the labor of the farm and noise of his wife was to take gun in hand and stroll away into the woods. Here, he would sometimes sit at the foot of a tree with Wolf, with whom he sympathized as a fellow sufferer in persecution. Poor Wolf, he would say. Wolf would wag his tail, look wistfully in his master's face, and if dogs can feel pity, I do believe he reciprocated the sentiment with all his heart. In a long stroll of just this kind one day, Rip had mindlessly wandered to one of the highest parts of the Catskill Mountains. 
he was after his favorite sport of squirrel shooting. Late in the afternoon, panting and tired, he threw himself on a green knoll covered with mountain grasses. He could overlook all the lower country for many a mile of rich woodland. He saw at a distance the lordly Hudson, far, far below him, moving on its silent but majestic course with the reflection of a purple cloud. On the other side, he looked down into a deep mountain glen, wild, lonely, and shaggy, the bottom filled with fragments from the impending cliffs and scarcely lit by the reflected rays of the setting sun. For some time, Rip lay musing on this scene. Evening was gradually advancing. The mountains began to throw their long blue shadows over the valleys. It would be dark long before he could reach the village, and he heaved a heavy sigh when he thought of encountering the terrors of Dame Van Winkle. As he was about to descend, he heard a voice from a distance calling, Rip Van Winkle, Rip Van Winkle. He looked around, but could see nothing but a crow winging its solitary flight across the mountain. He thought he must have heard things. At the same time, Wolf bristled up his back and giving a low growl, skulked to his master's side, looking fearfully down into the glen. Rip now felt a vague apprehension. He looked anxiously in the same direction and perceived a strange figure slowly coming up the rocks and bending under the weight of something he carried on his back. Rip was surprised to see anybody in this lonely place, but thinking he was a neighbor in need of help, he hurried down. Getting closer, he was still more surprised at the stranger's unusual appearance. He was a short, square-built old fellow with thick, bushy hair and a grizzled beard. His dress was of the antique Dutch fashion, breeches decorated with rows of buttons down the sides and bunches at the knees. He bore on his shoulder a stout keg that seemed full of liquor and made signs for Rip to approach and assist him with the load. Though rather shy and distrustful of his new acquaintance, Rip complied with his usual briskness, and together they clambered up a narrow, dry riverbed. As they ascended, Rip every now and then heard rolling, long peals, like distant thunder, that seemed to come out of a deep ravine, toward which their ragged path was headed. He paused for an instant, but thinking perhaps it was thunder, he proceeded. Passing through the ravine, they came to a hollow, like a small amphitheater, surrounded by tree branches, so that you only caught glimpses of the sapphire sky and the bright evening cloud. On entering the amphitheater, on a level spot in the center, was a company of odd faces, everyone playing a sort of nine-pin bowling, if you will. They were dressed in a quaint, outlandish fashion, of similar style to that of the guide. 
Their faces, too, were peculiar. They all had beards of various shapes and colors. There was one who seemed to be the commander. He was a stout old gentleman with a weather-beaten air. The whole group reminded Rip of the figures in an old Flemish painting he had seen in the house of the village parson. What seemed especially odd to Rip was that these folks were amusing themselves, yet they kept the gravest faces, the most mysterious silence, and were, for the most part, the most melancholy party of pleasure he had ever seen. Nothing interrupted the stillness of the scene but the noise of the balls hitting the pins, which echoed along the mountains like rumbling peals of thunder. As Rip and his companion approached them, they suddenly stopped playing and stared at him with such fixed, statue-like gaze and strange, uncouth, lackluster faces that his heart turned within him and his knees shook. His companion now emptied the contents of the keg into large, lidded mugs of pewter and made signs to him to wait upon them. He obeyed with fear and trembling. They quaffed the liquor in profound silence and then returned to their game. Eventually, Rip's apprehension subsided. He even ventured to taste the beverage when no one was looking. It had much of the flavor of an excellent Holland gin. He was naturally a thirsty soul and was soon tempted to repeat, and as one taste provoked another, he repeated his visits to his mug so often that his senses became overpowered. His eyes swam in his head, which fell back, and he descended into a deep sleep. On waking, he found himself on the green knoll where he had first seen the old man of the glen. He rubbed his eyes. It was a bright, sunny morning. The birds were hopping and twittering among the bushes, and the eagle was wheeling aloft in the pure mountain breeze. Surely, thought Rip, I have not slept here all night. He recalled the occurrences before he fell asleep. The strange man with a keg of liquor, the mountain ravine, the wild retreat among the rocks, the low-key party at ninepins, the mug, oh, that mug, that wicked mug, thought Rip. What excuse shall I make to Dame Van Winkle? He looked around for his gun, but in place of the clean, well-oiled fowling piece, he found an old rifle lying by him, the barrel encrusted with rust, the lock falling off, and the stock worm-eaten. Well, now he suspected that the spirits of the mountains had put a trick upon him and, having dosed him with liquor, had robbed him of his gun. Wolf, too, had disappeared, but he might have strayed away after a squirrel. He whistled after him and shouted his name, but all in vain, no dog. He decided to revisit the scene of last evening's affair, and if he met with any of the party, to demand his dog and his gun. As he got up to walk, 
he found himself stiff in the joints. These mountain beds do not agree with me, thought Rip. And if I end up with a fit of rheumatism, I shall have a blessed time with Dame Van Winkle. With some difficulty, he got down into the glen. He found the gully up which he and his companion had ascended the previous evening. But to his astonishment, a mountain stream was now foaming down it, leaping from rock to rock and filling the glen with babbling murmurs. He moved to scramble up its sides, working his way through thickets of birch and witch hazel, and sometimes tripped up or entangled by the wild grapevines that twisted their coils from tree to tree. Finally, he reached where the ravine had opened through the cliffs to the amphitheater. But no traces of such an opening remained. Poor Rip again called and whistled after his dog, but was only answered by the cawing of a flock of crows. Well, what to do? The morning was passing away, and Rip felt famished. He hated to give up his dog and gun. He dreaded to meet his wife, but it would not do to starve among the mountains. He shook his head, shouldered the rusty rifle, and with a heart full of trouble and anxiety, started homeward. Approaching the village, he met a number of people, but none whom he knew, which somewhat surprised him, for he thought he was acquainted with everyone in the area. Their dress, too, was different from that to which he was accustomed. They all stared at him with equal marks of surprise, and whenever they did, they invariably stroked their chins. The constant repetition of this gesture induced Rip involuntarily to do the same. And that's when, to his astonishment, he found his beard had grown a foot long. He entered the village, a troop of strange children running at his heels, hooting after him and pointing at his gray beard. The dogs, too, not one of whom he recognized, barked at him as he passed. The very village was altered. It was larger, and there were more people. There were rows of houses he had never seen before, and his familiar haunts had disappeared. Strange names were over the doors, strange faces at the windows. Everything was strange. He now began to wonder whether both he and the world around him were under a spell. Surely this was his native village, which he had left just the day before. There stood the Catskill Mountains. There ran the Silver Hudson at a distance. There was every hill and dale, precisely as it had always been. Rip was sorely perplexed. That drink last night, he thought, has mixed up my poor head. With some difficulty, he found the way to his own house, which he approached, expecting every moment to hear the shrill voice of Dame Van Winkle. But he found the house gone to decay. The roof had fallen in, the windows shattered, and the doors off the hinges. A half-starved dog that looked like Wolf was skulking about. 
Rip called him by name, but the mutt snarled, showed his teeth, and passed on. How unkind. My very dog has forgotten me, sighed Rip. He entered the house, which Dame Van Winkle had always kept neat. It was empty, forlorn, and apparently abandoned. Overcoming all his fears, he called loudly for his wife and children. The desolate chambers rang for a moment with his voice, and then all again was silence. Out he rushed to the village inn, but it too was gone. Instead of the great tree that used to shelter the quiet Dutch inn, there now stood a tall pole, and from it fluttered a flag on which was a collection of stars and stripes. All this was strange and incomprehensible. He saw a familiar sign, however, with the ruby face of King George, under which he had smoked so many a peaceful pipe. But even this was different. The red coat was changed for one of blue. A sword was held in the hand instead of a scepter. The head was decorated not with a crown, but a cocked hat, and underneath was painted in large characters, General Washington. Now, as usual, there was a crowd around the door, but none that Rip recognized. The very character of the people seemed changed. There was an animated tone instead of the accustomed drowsy tranquility. He looked in vain for the sage Nicholas Vedder, or Van Bummel, the schoolmaster. In place of these, a lean, sour fellow, with his pockets full of handbills, was going on vehemently about rights of citizens, elections, members of Congress, liberty, heroes of 76, and other words which were perfect gibberish to the bewildered Van Winkle. The appearance of Rip with his long, grizzled beard, his rusty fowling piece, his uncouth dress, and an army of women and children at his heels soon attracted the attention of the tavern politicians. They crowded around him, eyeing him with great curiosity. The speaker bustled up to him and demanded, On which side did you vote? Rip stared in vacant stupidity. Another short but busy fellow pulled him by the arm and asked if he was a federal or a democrat. Again, Rip was at a loss to comprehend the question. Just then, a self-important old gentleman in a sharp cocked hat made his way through the crowd and demanded in an austere tone what brought him to the election with a gun on his shoulder and a mob at his heels and whether he meant to breed a riot in the village. The poor man humbly assured him that he meant no harm but merely came there in search of some of his neighbors who used to keep about the tavern. Well, who are they? Name them. Rip thought about it for a moment and asked, Where's Nicholas Vetter? There was a silence for a while. When an old man replied, Nicholas Vetter, why, he's dead and gone for 18 years. Where's Brom Dutcher? Oh, he went off to the army in the beginning of the war and never came back again. Then 
Where's Van Bummel, the schoolmaster? He went off to the wars, too, was a great militia general, and is now in Congress. Rip's heart died away at hearing of these sad changes in his home and his friends, and finding himself now alone in the world. Every answer puzzled him, too, spanning such enormous lapses of time and of matters which he could not understand. War, Congress. He couldn't bear to ask after any more friends, but cried out in despair, Does anybody here know Rip Van Winkle? While the bystanders began to look at each other, nod, wink, and tap their fingers against their foreheads, there was a whisper also about taking away the gun and keeping the old fellow from doing mischief. At this critical moment, a fresh, handsome woman pressed through the throng to get a peep at the gray-bearded man. She had a chubby child in her arms, which, frightened at his looks, began to cry. Hush, Rip, she cried. Hush, you little fool. The old man won't hurt you. The name of the child, the air of the mother, the tone of her voice, all awakened a train of memories in his mind. What is your name, my good woman? Judith Gardiner. And your father's name? Ah, poor man. Rip Van Winkle was his name. But it's twenty years since he went away from home with his gun and never has been heard of since. His dog came home without him. But whether he shot himself or was spirited away, nobody can tell. I was just a little girl. Rip had but one more question to ask. Where's your mother? Oh, she died a short time later. She broke a blood vessel in a fit of passion at a New England salesman. The honest man could contain himself no longer. He caught his daughter and her child in his arms. I'm your father, cried he. Young Rip Van Winkle once, old Rip Van Winkle now. Does nobody know poor Rip Van Winkle? Everyone stood amazed until an old woman, tottering out from among the crowd, peered in his face for a moment and cried out, Sure enough, it is Rip Van Winkle. It is himself. Welcome home again, old neighbor. Why, where have you been all these years? Rip's story was soon told, for the whole twenty years had seemed to him as but one night. The neighbors stared when they heard it. There was a general shaking of the head throughout the gathering. They all agreed to call upon old Peter Vanderdonk who was seen slowly advancing up the road. Peter was the most ancient inhabitant of the village and well-versed in all the wonderful events and traditions of the neighborhood. He recollected Rip at once and corroborated his story in the most satisfactory manner. He assured the company that it was, in fact, handed down from his ancestor, the historian, that the Catskill Mountains had always been haunted by strange beings. That it was affirmed that the great Hendrick Hudson, the first discoverer of the river and country, kept a kind of vigil there 
every twenty years with his crew of the Half Moon, being permitted in this way to revisit the scenes of his enterprise and to keep a close eye upon the river and the great city called by his name. That his father had once seen them in their old Dutch dresses, playing at ninepins in a hollow of the mountain, and that he himself had heard, one summer afternoon, the sound of their ninepin balls, like distant peals of thunder. The company broke up and returned to the more important concerns of the election. Rip's daughter took him home to live with her. She had a snug, well-furnished house and a stout, cheery farmer for a husband, whom Rip remembered for one of the urchins that used to climb upon his back. As to Rip's son and heir, who was a copy of himself, he was employed to work on the farm, but showed a hereditary disposition to do just about anything but his business. Rip now resumed his old walks and habits. He soon found many of his former cronies, though all rather the worst for the wear and tear of time, and preferred making friends among the rising generation, with whom he was quite popular. Having nothing to do at home, and being now at that happy age when a man can be idle with no guilt at all, he took his place once more on the bench at the inn door, and was respected as one of the patriarchs of the village and a chronicle of the old times, before the war. It was some time before he could get into the regular track of gossip or could comprehend the strange events that had taken place during his sleep. The changes of states and empires made hardly any impression on him. But there was one species of oppression under which he had long suffered. Happily, that was at an end. He had got his neck out of the yoke of matrimony and could go in and out whenever he pleased without dreading the tyranny of Dame Van Winkle. Whenever her name was mentioned, however, he shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, and cast up his eyes, which might pass either for an expression of resignation to his fate or joy at his deliverance. He used to tell his story to every stranger that arrived at the hotel. At first, he would vary on some points every time he told it, at last, though, it settled down precisely to the tale I have related, and not a man, woman, or child in the neighborhood did not know it by heart. Some pretended to doubt it and insisted that Rip had been out of his head. The old Dutch inhabitants, however, almost universally gave it credit. Even to this day, they never hear a thunderstorm of a summer afternoon around the Catskills, but they say Hendrick Hudson and his crew are at their game of nine pins. And it is a common wish of all put upon husbands in the neighborhood when life hangs heavy on their hands that they too might have a long, quieting drink out of Rip Van Winkle's pewter mug. And so with that, I wish you a quiet, restful sleep, not one of twenty years, just whatever you need. <laughs>
drift off and sweet dreams.